0: Your Reader's Hour on Quarantine FM. You're joined by your hosts Catherine Gallagher and Anna Dalton.
1: In Reader's Hour, we'll be taking a look at literature across the cultural spectrum, including fiction, drama, essays, poetry, journalism, and everything in between.
0: On today's show, we are going to hear from poetry scholar and teacher Thomas Rogers Endersby. And later on, we'll chat about some of the most successful adaptations of Irish novels to make it on to the big screen. But first of all, we're continuing on our kind of historical uh, literature path uh, in Ireland. We're going to chat about the censorship act that had its impact on literature and journalism and media in Ireland um, in and around about 100 years ago. And we were talking last week about the Irish Literary Revival and Lady Gregory and Yeats. And this kind of takes place either a little bit in, in the thick of it or just after it started. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it is important to stress that there's so much history behind the Censorship Act. So we're going to pick first... Uh, couple of the two or three main things for both myself and Anna that really jumped at us when we were looking into this so yeah and what were the, the couple of main things that shocked you or surprised you
1: yeah I really enjoyed doing a little bit of research on this and you would know a lot more than me about it because we were we we're chatting about this that you studied it in the context of your degree um on, in particularly focusing on journalism um but I think it's something that I didn't know, you know, you obviously know that Ireland has a history of banning books and kind of, you know, questioning the morality of of arts and printed texts and banning them. But I didn't really it's not something I've looked into that deeply before. Um so one so was well, something that actually really shocked me was that the name of the committee that was founded to censor them is called the committee on evil literature which I just I don't know what maybe I shouldn't be surprised by that but I, I honestly just thought who named that like that it just it's so dramatic I mean I don't know it's it's just like you can just the Catholicism is laid on very thick in that title um and that was kind of was that is that was the first kind of body was it to censor texts and that was 1926 I think so yeah was quite both amused and horrified by that title Um, (laughs) and I'm trying to think what else Um, yeah I mean and then I was kind of reminding myself about Eamon de Valera's input kind of into it not from the very beginning but um, you know he definitely got behind the whole censorship movement so yeah it was definitely interesting to to hear about his influence and in that. Um, Yeah, what about you? What stood out?
0: I think you had mentioned it before. There was a couple of things like the word pregnant wasn't printed oh really anywhere until the 1960s.
1: Yeah. They, they
0: were just so against talking about any type of family planning or not, not even talking about it, but just having it printed anywhere. um. That was one, I suppose the committee as well the the name of it, but are we surprised but I think the the amount of attention i suppose this speaks to 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 my degree, but the amount of attention that was given to the newspapers and what they were were reporting on and there was a couple of main things that the church and the the committee, like we said, really didn't like to see, and that was the reporting on or discussion of anything to do with family planning or abortion, divorce, and um, crime, especially sexual crime, any sexual crimes. Um, they were the main things, and anything that kind of threatened Irish morality or Catholicism, um. What really surprised me, I remember at the time, was hearing about, you know, trains that were stopped, you know, trains that were stopped, and um, UK newspapers being burned uh, by the clergy, and and all this kind of thing. The extent, yeah. I I think the main thing was the extent that they went to to ban, you know, certain things being discussed in print and. The books as well, which uh, we might get into a couple of those. But we were saying before we started recording that this kind of ties into, like, what we were talking about, the Irish literary revival, about, like, what is it to be Irish? Um, Irish is anything that is not British. Yet the British newspapers that were circulating in Ireland... And, and had huge, you know, readership considering. And they, the the new the UK newspapers at the time were a lot more free, free verse. Or they were a lot more free, less restrained in what they were reporting on. But the three main things that were of concern in and around like 1910, 1911, when the, when the attempts really first started to, to bring about censorship, three main things was any information and family planning, whatever that might be, the word, pregnant, obviously. Um, general morality, like I said, of um, British newspapers or magazines, and then just books as well. They, 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 a lot of books would have been banned too. Um, one of them, there was lots of little different groups that were set up that were really obviously disturbed particularly by the circulation of the newspapers and magazines from Britain. One of the main ones was the Irish Vigilance Association, and they were organised on a parish-by-parish basis. So you have to imagine the mm-hmm. amount of coordination and organisation that went in um, into these. And they particularly had their eyes on the News of the World, Sporting Times, Empire News... London mail and health and efficiency, and all these were deemed to be object, objectionable and unsuitable um mm-hmm. They started campaigns, demonstrations, writing letters they, they did whatever they could, but it was only partially successful because whether the drive went out at the time but they you you could still if you really wanted them, you could still access them, you could still buy them in secret. But one of the things that they and others did was that they would, you could say harass or approach, you could pick either of the words, they would go up to shop owners um, and intimidate them into signing pledges to promise not to sell these particular Mm -hmm. magazines or newspapers. But the crucial event in all of this that brought about the legislation was how this Committee on Evil Literature uh, came about and it was the Irish Catholic Bishops Standing Committee, that mouthful, they sought a meeting in 1926 with uh, the Minister for Justice at the time uh, about their concerns about these materials. The meeting was arranged the following day, you know, if you think about it, a group of bishops could click their fingers and command to meet a minister. And it, it happened within the day. Um, a committee, like we said, was appointed less than a month later. But interestingly enough, uh, the bishops were invited to give evidence, but they declined, saying that their talking was done and it was meant to be kept behind closed doors. So there was, <laughs> these r- religious groups from all around Ireland, there's kind of nearly too many to mention, to be honest. But one of the main interest groups that wasn't invited uh, was the National Jun- National Union of Journalists. They were not invited to give evidence. Um. Following year, they uh, presented a report to the government, and. So that was 1927, and then by 1929 there was the Censorship Act.
1: Uh, yeah, there's loads. Um, actually, just before I move on to that, I just think it's so interesting when you're describing that of how calculated and... It's just they went to such lengths to sort of plant the seed in every parish and build the mechanism up over a couple of decades so that, as you say, in 1926... There were so many powerful people behind this already that, you know, the time was right. They had the free state, you know, was already a couple of years old and they just said, now's the time. Let's lock this in. And it just immediately, like, so such a quick turnaround. Um, but yeah, a huge uh, amount of authors banned like we were discussing this. So Kate O'Brien is one. Um. And yeah, one of the first, so actually we're looking at which were kind of the, some of the first books that were banned, um. and one is an author, Radcliffe Hall, um, a woman writer who wrote a book um, called The Well of Loneliness, which was about a lesbian relationship. So that was one of the first on the list that they said, get rid of that, we don't want it. And then quite a lot of really, really well-known authors, like I was thinking as well, quite a few of the big short story writers well, Liam O'Flaherty, Sean O'Foylan, Frank O'Connor, um, very famously Edna O'Brien. Um, she had two books banned and within two years, and well, this is kind of later on in 1960 with The Country Girls, um, The Lonely Girl. Again, I think with The Lonely Girl, which came out in 1962, Archbishop John Charles McQuaid complained personally to the then Justice Minister Charles Hawhey and said get this banned and it was immediately banned so it's it's just that kind of they had such access to whisper in the ears of the politicians in power and just get anything that they thought was immoral and that was a lot as we've as we've discovered from this research just get rid of it.
0: The Land of Spices by Kate O'Brien it was banned yes. on, on the basis of the last five words. I think I heard it was even on the last page, um, which I'm not 100% sure about, but it was banned on the basis of, oh yeah, the last five words, so that would be on the last page, that makes sense, describing the character's father with another man, and the five words were, and she saw them embrace. So that was one example of something that got banned. I was saying as well, a poem, a translation, a direct translation of a poem, which in English uh, is The Midnight Court. Um, Frank O'Connor translated it in 1946 and it got published and it was banned. It was a poem about sexual frustration in rural Ireland. So he was a brave man maybe at the time mm, for, for yes. attempting it. But the original poem was written in Irish um, And then when O'Connor translated it directly, word for word, it was banned. But he was falsely accused of inventing a blasphemous passage for the translation. But this is the thing, books in Irish and material in Irish was not banned. So the original version of it, published three years after O'Connor's translation, was not banned. And that was in the thick of censorship. That was 1949. That was Mm. in the thick of it. One of the the main things that was kept an eye on was the News of the World, which of course we know is a UK based publication or it was up until two thousand and eleven. Um the News of the World was one of the main things that caused like the you know, the biggest stirs, you know, in the committee and for um the clergy. Um and it was deemed that they published just a lot of, um, they published a lot of just sensationalist materials, a lot of crime. Um, but for Irish readers as well, you have to remember like other papers or other magazines offered this alternative viewpoint probably for the first time uh, ever for them. Um, and obviously the demand was there um, and it was seen as an alternative public sphere, but having the potential to threaten Catholic moral values, like we have said. Um, but the most controversial episode with regards to the news of the world was in Cork in 1927, where four members of a local Catholic priest group seized the papers and other British titles and legal proceedings uh, happened subsequently after that and they were given public support. Um the editor of the Christian Brothers magazine, Our Boys, wrote to the Minister for Justice in nineteen twenty six. Um so that yeah, so that was sorry, that was the year before. So that was kind of the start of, of, of all of this. But it was deemed in nineteen thirty um that enough was enough with the paper at a kind of, at a political level. Uh, and under the legislation at the time, the ban was to last for an initial three months. No appeal, there was no appeal provision until the Act was amended in 1946, which allowed members of the Iraqis to to make an appeal to the uh, committee's decisions and when the news of the first ban was confirmed, the wholesaler Giles Eason uh, was contacted to arrange to facilitate meetings with authorities in Dublin. To cut a long story short, there was a couple of appeals made uh, in the interim period, but it would not be lifted off the censorship ban list until 1961. So there was interventions made in the interim period um, and it's a little bit complicated but um, then in 1961 they brought out like an Irish edition. So we do hear of Irish editions now like the Times UK Irish edition that's to tailor for our local news but they tailored it to take out local sensitivities is what it was called. They took out you know the particularly particularly salacious uh, content and whatnot, but mm-hmm. like to think of, of a newspaper being banned f- for that amount of time, like it's just,
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, it's just unbelievable, like.
1: Yeah, it is, yeah, <laughs> it's it, it's mad. um, uh, Particularly that I had such a wide readership, you know, and it was like the demand for it would have been huge.
0: Things did begin to relax a little bit around then with the introduction of television but, and that's mm. a period called New Journalism but that is honestly a completely different uh, discussion altogether. Yeah. We'd be here all night talking about it but the key takeaways I think um, for me anyway would just be well, the, the sheer amount of influence that the Catholic
1: Church had and I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by this but I know. And it's it's important, I think, because I I hadn't really thought of how wide reaching an act like that is. So the fact that so, you know, it's, it's literature, print journalism, any kind of magazines or, you know, pamphlets providing information on access to women's health care, abortion. And these were banned up into, you know, up until not that long ago. And, you know, things like Playboy magazine, I think it was in the 90s that that was taken off the list in Ireland. It's, you know, it just was all of these publications could not be published at all. Um, And I think even like there was, I think, some, as far as I know, with some abortion um, materials, they were actually still on a banned list up until a few years ago and had to be taken off and I think it was probably say like pamphlets that were no longer being printed and were out of date or whatever but they were still kind of symbolically on this banned list so I think then they had to be that you know that had to be looked into and removed but it's it's just yeah it's there's a such a huge back catalogue oh it's, it's, yeah. when you're looking at it all together it's it's pretty staggering
0: Anna, you were chatting to Thomas earlier in the week. Tell us what the two of you got up to.
1: Yes, Catherine. So I caught up with Thomas earlier on and he's someone I studied at, um, undergrad with and who has an extreme interest in poetry. did his master's um, in modern literature, focusing on poetry. Um, a real Yeats expert, but... We actually decided to have a chat about Mahan, um, Derek Mahan, poet who who died a little earlier on this year. Um, and yeah, we, we spoke a little bit about his his poetry um, and his legacy and, and looked at a couple of poems in particular. OK, so delighted now to welcome Thomas Rogers Andrewsby to the program. Who's taken time out of a insanely hectic week to chat to me about Mahan. Welcome, Thomas evening <laughs> so we thought given Mahan's passing in October that we might just take a little bit of time to chat about him and I thought of Thomas for this because I know he's he's something of a fan and has spent <laughs> a, a good bit of time with Mahan's poetry in good times and in bad so I yeah I I've, I suppose that's the first thing I was going to ask you Thomas is when you kind of came to Mahan or found his poetry?
2: Um, I think I came to him, well I know when I came to him, um, which was the final year of university or final year of my undergrad. Um, We were taking, well no you didn't take this course Anna, but taking a course on um, authority of the poet, focusing in on the idea of um, the, I suppose the main philosophical thrust behind one uh, poetic voice and how that shaped or formed. Uh, And so, Matton was one of I think five or six poets on that particular course um, and I'd never really engaged with him much before I think I may have read a little bit of it hit at the junior cert or something like it mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't until then that I sort of got the new collected poems which of course gets recollected and recollected basically every year so my version of new collected poems which is I don't know probably 2016 2014 something like that is definitely out of date by now because Mahan will have changed something again and again. Uh, it's 2011 actually, my new collected poems, okay. Um but yeah. very defunct. Um,
1: <laughs> I heard this, I, the, he, it's very interesting that he was such a serial reviser of his own poets. Poet. I think this is something that pissed off his publisher Peter Fallon at Gallery Press because Mahan was always saying oh I just want to keep revising and just a few more changes and Obviously, it's a, a nightmare if you're his editor, saying, oh, God, we have to bring out another <laughs> selected or collected.
2: It. Well, it's um, a nightmare if you're working on him as well, So, which is why my copy of New Collected Poems has rather boringly on every page um, of any poem I've ever sort of written on, I, um, I have in different colour inks the, the changes um, so, it's, so this is where radio falls down, I suppose. Uh, but um, every yeah, every page, I've got sort of amendations from, for instance, where one thing changes in the yellow book to the last collected poems to anything like that. And I just, it does make me want to, with some spare time, one day in the future sort of recollect his poetry in a multiple format edition and see if you could sort of gather all of Mahan's weird and strange um, tweaks and changes that come over the years and try and make sense of them. Because often they can be quite... Aww. Quite basic. Um, you know, he, one of his really quick revisions that he makes a lot of the time will be switching from something like 60s as a word to 60s as numerals. And I'm, those are the ones that puzzle <laughs> me the most, I think, because I, I sort of stare at those amendations and just think, right, I can understand shifting actual words for, for rhythm, for meaning, for something. But I'll, I'll never really understand, other than sort of the appearance on the page, why numerals get changed. Um, mm-hmm. Or why he takes things in and out of italics and titles, um, or uh, the one you know, one that makes more sense, I suppose, is lots of the epigraphs get removed as he goes along. So it's, it's almost though like he starts with a slightly more um, flashy, embellished, burnished thing, and his, his his final process is to strip it back uh, and remove these epigraphs and remove these little flourishes until you just get to the kind of the rawness of what perhaps he's striving for. Um,
1: yeah, it is. It's incredibly pernickety. And I know that sort of comes with the, you know, moniker, you know, poet, but it it is the fact that he's, he cares enough to make a change that to or I seems, you know, pretty pointless is, you know, the word 60s, as you say, to numerals. So it's, it is interesting. I wonder, is it, you know, what, did it really bother him? Would you have lain awake at night thinking, oh, I can't rest until I well, make that alteration?
2: I think so. I mean, this is the man who lived for years in um, Fitzwilliam Square in Dublin. And it's it's only when he can no longer live in Fitz. So he, I mean, the, the backstory there is that he used to rent um, a garret, an attic at the top of a house in Fitzwilliam Square in Dublin. And um, when the old lady who owned the house, when she died and her son inherited it and he went to develop it or something like that, uh, and Mahan could no longer live exactly there. He decided he would no longer live in Dublin. Um, so this is the perfectionist in him, I yeah. suppose. Uh, and it's, it's, a, you know, it's a bandied around term perfectionist, but I do think Mahan is someone, someone who strives to get as close to that as possible. But, you know, it's this idea that I can either live in a beautiful Georgian square or I don't live in that city at all. And that's, that's why he ends up in Kinsale in the end. Um, yeah. And again, this weird existence of always living in someone else's property. In Kinsale, he lived... Um, basically, in an annex again to someone else's house.
1: Okay. Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, and I so I sort of I meant to kind of start with a biography for people who aren't as familiar with Mahan. But he, you know, born in Belfast in nineteen forty one. He studied in Dublin, and then lived in kind of various places. I think he studied at the Sorbonne in Paris. He was in America and Canada at different times. Um, I think a brief foray as kind of a journalist in London and then I think I want to say America again and then as you say he kind of settled from the mid-90s in Kinsale so sort of somebody who moved around who kind of didn't really return to Belfast after after growing up there Um, but was sort of always you know it, it certainly figures a lot in the poems and also he was often referred to as sort of one of the the set, you know, from the North of Ireland at the time of kind of Heaney, Longley, and Mahan are always mm. sort of talked about together. Um, which in a way I think is, is slightly difficult because I feel like Mahan maybe didn't get as, as much airtime as perhaps he would have if Heaney wasn't as towering a figure. Because I, well, maybe not as maybe you know he is, and obviously he's still, you know, he made, he's made it onto. The curriculum and you know but I just feel that maybe his poetry hasn't had the attention or the kind of fame that it might have done if he wasn't always looked at in that context.
2: Yeah perhaps but I also think that you know that needs a towering figure through accessibility uh, which is which is something we can never put on on Mahan and that's not to discredit him in any sense I think there's no there's no shame or no problem in that if it were more accessible I might not be as as interested in it which actually that sounds like sort of a terrible thing to say but I don't think it is um so so yes growing you know growing up to, to the one of a better phrase under the uh, or growing up with the, the shadow of Heaney is always going to be difficult but I, I don't think Mahon and Heaney were ever engaging with the same things or trying to do the same things and therefore I think even without Heaney the the lack of accessibility you might find in Mahon uh, would would still have kept him where he was in the sort of the poetic zeitgeist as such.
1: Yeah. And what do you think it, it is about his poetry that is sort of maybe slightly dif- more difficult to access than the likes of Heaney? Because there are, to me, there are certain parallels in that both would have loved sort of formal structure. You know, obviously Mahan wrote pretty much always in a, you know, a strict enough form, um, which Heaney often did as well. Both kind of translated from different languages and kind of, you know, published translations of the classics of kind of Greek drama. Um, so there are certain echoes to me in what they were doing, but to you there's sort of a, something very different going on in Mahon.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we think of Heaney engaging with the classical, he's like um, Kinsler translating the Torn or someone like that. It's still accessible classical, but I, I think when Mahan starts to move towards his large references. There's something incredibly academic and knowing about them. Um, and he. I don't think he makes any bones about the fact that he's sort of saying, you know, for want of better words, again, um, this is perhaps cliche to, to go into Yates, but he he is the man who has read and who has thought. And I don't think Heaney ever wants to play that role. I think he wants to be the everyman. Um, and I think that's where perhaps the accessibility changes because Mahan's never trying to be the everyman. He's trying to be... The specific thinker uh to be the sort of the philosopher king and i don't think he has any qualms about doing that whereas perhaps Heaney wants to be wants to be read needs to be read um in order for his poetic project to be successful as opposed to man i think almost could exist in isolation um and, and one support of that is almost his his constant revisionism you know if you if you don't need your reader to a certain extent then it doesn't matter if you're constantly revising um now, of course, if you're publishing, I suppose that sort of undermines that argument slightly, but you would never expect he to take a really successful collection of poetry if he'd written the Yellow Book and then go, actually, do you know what? Call back Gallery Press, I'm changing it. Um, I want it republished with, with minor changes.
1: Yeah, that is, that is true. Um, and when you talk about sort of a, a philosophical nature to Mahan, do you think that's, the, it's sort of a gravitation towards darkness of kind of contemplating, I don't know, human insignificance, because there, there's a lot of darkness in the poetry. A lot of, I think, trying to get to grips with, with death, but also, to my mind, kind of survival and sort of enduring and maybe sort of a sense that sometimes reminds me a bit of Beckett, of this sort of, well, it keeps going you know, life keeps going on and I, I keep writing and here we go again.
2: Yeah, well, in, in his own words, you know, twice have come in from the cold and then thrice have come in from the cold. I'm sure if he'd lived for longer, we'd have four and five times have I come in from the cold. Um, uh, yeah, perhaps there is a, a drawing to darkness. I think there's, um, and I suppose there's quite a bold claim, quite a big claim, but one that I feel quite comfortable in making. There is something of the Miltonic about Mahan I think one of the the great philosophical movements he's he's trying to get towards um, is the ineffable, um, and I think he does make great strides in trying to get to uh, the ineffable, and that's where that's where I would see something Miltonic in him, uh, and perhaps that is that darkness, the disorder and chaos that comes with darkness, and he goes for the, sort of the cliche shining of light, um, and the the only way to really do that is to equip yourself with the uh, with the classical references uh, and the, the sort of the, the, the larger ideas that some of his contemporaries wouldn't quite engage with.
1: So maybe this is a good moment where we might pick a poem or two and just have a have a read and maybe discuss a little bit, if that sounds OK to you. Yeah.
2: Um, one that I would suggest as a, a good insight, well, I think there are two great insights into Mahan. Uh, one is a banger requiem, um I think you can tell a lot about someone by how they write an elegy. Um, and there is something deeply, I don't know what sort of adjective we're going for, is it Mahonesque? There's something deeply Mahonesque about... Mahonian? Uh, Mahonian, I think Mahonian, we'll have to settle Mahonian. There's something deeply Mahonian about, um, about a banger requiem, um, mm-hmm. in the same way that there is uh, about, um, for Eugene Lamb in heaven. Um, but yeah, I would suggest a banger requiem. Okay, okay perfect. Well
1: if you if you would I'd love you to read it.
2: Of course. We stand, not many of us, in a new cemetery on a cold hillside in the north of County Down and stare at an open grave or out to sea. The lock half hidden by great drifts of rain. Only a few months since you were snug at home in a bungalow glow, keeping provincial time in the chimney corner, newsletter and woman's own. On your knee, wool gathering by Plato's firelight, a grudging flicker of flame on anthracite. Inactive since your husband died, your chief concern, the appearances that ruled your life in a neighbourhood of bay windows and stiff gardens shivering in the salt sea air. The sunburst ideogram on door and gate. You knew the secret history of needlework, bread bin and laundry basket awash with light, the straight-backed chairs, the madly-chiming clock. The figure in the Republic returns to the cave. A Dutch interior where cloud shadows move to examine the intimate spaces, chest and drawer. The lavender in the linen, the savings book, the kitchen table silent with nobody there. Shall we say the patience of an angel? No, not unless angels be thought anxious too. God knows you had reason to be and yet with your wise monkeys and dresden figurines your junk chinoiserie and coy pastoral scenes you too were an artist a rage for order freak setting against a man's aesthetic of cars and golf your ornaments and other breakable stuff visible from your window the sixth century abbey church of column and malachy light of the world once in the monastic ages home of antiphonery and the golden pages of radiant scripture though you had your own idea of the beautiful, not unrelated to Tolstoy, but formed in a tough city of ships and linen, Harland and Wolfe, Mackies, Gallagher's, Lyle and Kinnaghan, and your own York Street, Flax Company, Spinning Company Limited, Darth musicals at the Curzon and the Savoy. Beneath a Castilian sky, at a great mystic's Rococo tomb, I thought of the plain Protestant fatalism of home. Remember 1690, prepare to meet thy God. I grew up among washing lines and grey skies, pictures of Brookborough on the gable ends, revolvers, RUC, B-specials, law and order, a hum of drums above the summer glens, shattering the twilight over Water in a violent post-industrial sunset blaze, while you innocently hummed south of the border, on a slow boat to China, beyond the blue horizon. Little soul, the body's guest and companion, this is a cold epitaph from your only son, the wish genuine if the tone ambiguous. Oh, I can love you now that you are dead and gone, to the many mansions in your mother's house. All artifice stripped away, we give you back to nature, but something of you, perhaps the incurable ache of art, goes with me as I travel south past misty Drumlins, shining lanes to the shore, above the morns a final helicopter. Sun showers and rainbows all the way through Louth, cottages buried deep in ivy and rhododendron, Ranch Houses, Dusty Palms, Blue Skies of the Republic.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful one. So that is a banger requiem, but also is it Death, death and Banger? It was changed, did you say?
2: Yes, it was, it was Death and Banger when it was the yellow book and now it's a banger requiem. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, uh, perhaps one of his more interesting um, title changes. Uh, I suppose the thing that always strikes me about that more than anything is the the boldness um and something that he 's to be commended for in a way of of taking on something like the allergy for one 's own mother and having the having the confidence and the comfortableness to compare her to one of the figures in plato 's cave um not not to do too much of this, but think of think of heaney's own clearance sequences and, and and how he engages with his mother 's death and yeah obviously the separation there is man didn't have the the fairness of relationships with his mother which is not surprising when you listen to that poem um but but having the um having the chutzpah (laughs) to not take (laughs) not take the moment when they've died and think now is the is the time to comply uh, or to to follow the the natural order of things but to say no actually i'm I'm going to stake my claim and say even the yeah even the even the the figures in the Republic return to the cave i'm going I'm going to compare my own mother to that level of ignorance um
1: yeah and it's also it strikes me it's almost yeah in in plenty of ways it's not elegiac as you would expect like it it's quite an energetic poem and it kind of darts in some way to me between different references i I don't know it doesn't really have the slowed down both pace and kind of um kind of deliberate reverence maybe that I would expect um in in this kind of poem
2: yeah yeah I mean who, who thinks of an elegy ending on ellipsis yeah <laughs> if, if, if nothing else you know that like that flies in the face of what you think of it as a form there is you know Mahon hasn't found resolution here uh and I think no. you're right it's, it's a perceptive view to say that the the pace is there uh, and the the constant illusion reference um because because he hasn't found resolution, he's not succeeded in the in the elegy form
1: yeah, you're right, it's sort of a deliberate objection to that, and i i kind of yeah i I respect that because it's i think that is there's always sort of an expected neatness and as you say resolution to an elegy that. You know, is perhaps not always that's really not always an authentic kind of conveyor of what experiencing grief is, especially if you've had a difficult relationship with the person. So I think yeah, he, he kind of stays true to to his own maybe defiant kind of sense of of his own both experience and, I don't know, ability as a poet to to not do the expected.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, it's, he can do it if he wants to. That's the thing. This is not out of any kind of lack of skill. I mean, this is a man who can sit down and write a villanelle in half an hour. Um, if he wants to make an elegy work, <laughs> uh, it, that is not beyond Maham's scope. And um, so, it is very much a pointed uh, and deliberate, open-endedness. I think. Mm. Um, I think if we compare it, if I may, to another elegy of his, you can see when he, if he wants an elegy to work, an elegy can work. Um, I might just quickly turn to yeah, uh, another poem that. from the same collection, actually. Which,
1: what, well, um sorry, I was just going to say what collection and what um, kind of year or era was this published in? Do you know?
2: Um, so we're looking at uh, what was once the Yellow Book. Uh, and so Yellow Book is, what, 90s uh, okay. and, and then becomes um, recollected as something else decadence it's recollected as decadence oh uh, uh, yes and he changes it okay um, so yeah when he when he wants an elegy he, he can do this um, to eugene lamb in heaven university road belfast 1961 etc it's after closing time on a winter night in smoky joe's cafe a generation ago rain and smoke and the tables are packed tight with drunken students kicking up a racket, exchanging insults, looking for a fight since there's nothing to do and nowhere else to go. And the grave Italians, parents, daughter, son, who own the place and serve these savages of the harsh north, their chips and sausages look up and smile with relief as you come in. Their baffled faces lighting up at once at your quaint whisker and velvet smoking jacket, your manner that of an exiled Stuart Prince, transfiguring tedium. Next year you appeared in the same gear and spread, Tolstoyan beard, our ginger man, in Trinity's front square, you called the playground once. And it was here, in a pub and flat, you formed the character we came to love. Colloquial, yet ornate. One of those perfect writers who never write. A student of manners and conversation straight from the pages of Castiglione or Baudelaire. A form of pride rare in this generation, stoical, spiritual even, resistant to the trite, the Protestant countries lack gallantry and devotion. Not that you read much. You had no need to read, so flunked your courses. Destined for the law, took up, instead, interior decoration, installing yourself wherever the calling led awaiting the rush of gold you never saw. There you were in the fine house of a friend, a citrus gin or herbal tea to hand, young women in attendance, and a host constrained to listen patiently while you explain the iniquity of ownership for you have no ambition, save for the moment, of willpower not a whit, since nothing could measure up to your idea of it. Dublin in the sixties, golden days of folk revival, tin whistle and baron, ecology, yin and yang, CND, late century blues, Gandalf's garden, bananas and peace news. Then London, covent garden and quit the booze. At a time of drag, and pop art, hair and clothes, beardsley prints, floral design and rainbow hues of Bieber, Hammond and Trimpton, lurid tights, commodity fetishism, instant celebrity, insolent pose. Yours was a sociable life, but a lonely one. Your castle of indolence, a monastic den, where you sat up late to contemplate the din of Leicester Square, Longacre and Drury Lane. Vocations entered, but never followed through. A job, a house, a car, perhaps a wife. Financial panic, the normal sort of life so many knew. Such things were not for you who made the great refusal but remained philosophical with your dwindling flow of visitors. Chivalrous with women, ceremonious with waiters, noble in exile, tragic in the end. And died dancing. But hip went out of fashion in an age of sadomonetarism, and the game now is to the economists and calculators. The new harshness must have wounded you to the heart. We always knew you had too big a heart we always knew about the heart condition you nursed with a vegetarian regime of rice and nuts you were a saint and hero to the young men and girls we used to know once in the golden age and now it is closing time in the condemned pay- playgrounds that you loved eugene in daily burns and smoky joe's the scene is dragging now in these final days and with everyone famous for 15 minutes few survive except those like you the stuff of myth Oft in the stilly night, I remember our wasted youth.
1: Who do you know? Who Eugene Lamb was?
2: Do you know? I don't. Well, that's, that's probably something I should know. Um, well, no! I, 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 but... I, I, I've never really looked into it beyond um, beyond knowing it as a poem. I think it sort of exists quite well in, yeah, in isolation. I think
1: it does too. It, there's a the whole world of Eugene Lamb just in that those you know couple of pages really. Um, yeah. Gosh, it's it's a beautiful evocation of a time and place, isn't it? There's this sense of, I, clearly, and this is quite, you know, clear in the poem that it's how fond Mahan is of this time in his life and who was there, and vividly capturing these kind of haunts around Dublin. Um, I don't know of of his own youth as well as the person that he's elegizing.
2: Yeah, and there's, there's an element of the self mythologizing there as well, though, isn't there? There's a, the, you know, there's elegise your, your, your friend and also create this whole myth or um, set of archetypes to suggest how you once moved. Um, I think that's the clever sleight of hand, is there's, a, there's an agrandissement there. In, in In suggesting that there is this great time of which he was a part, um you know I'm not disputing yeah. there was a great time of which he was a part, but I think it's a rather clever uh and and deft way of of revising one's own history as well
1: I know what you mean, but i I think maybe there's also that uh, the playfulness and maybe just the awareness of i don't know when what it feels like to be young and i don't know um at that time you sort of feel like you are of consequence and your life feels so important to you at that time. Do you know what I mean? Whereas I think later on in life, you maybe have a little bit, I don't know, yeah, maybe less, I don't know, self-involvement or that's not the right word, but... Well, I I think
2: what he captures, I think, and perhaps that's what you're getting at too, is a sense of of, 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 of describing someone exactly at the point of all potential yes uh you, you know getting them that the zenith of potential um and I, I think in the in the sixties and even now, I suppose university is the zenith of one's potential, this sense that you have achieved that what you need to achieve to sort of attain your place in wherever you want to read whatever you want to read and and with these three or four years you you cement your your future as the next, whatever it, sort of lofty ambition you have then. Um, I think it's the it's the yeah it's capturing that potential that um, that he does so successfully.
1: Well, I think Thomas, we might leave it there because I've I've taken up a a decent chunk of your evening, and although we could keep talking Mahan, you know, we can we can come back to him, he'll still be there. Um, But yeah, so thank you for chatting to me.
2: Oh, not at all. Thank you very much for asking.
1: So just thank you again to Thomas for for coming on the show. Um, it was it was great to chat to him. We might have him on again to speak about Yeats or, or another poet. Um, but but thanks to him. And if you if you did want to track him down and chat about poetry, you could find him on his Instagram, which is at thomas underscore or dot e.
0: And just for the final part of the show, we're completely taking a bit of a V line from the top of the show, but we said that we would look at some of the adaptations of Irish novels and kind of almost the phenomena behind it as well. Um. So, yeah, so some of the main adaptations. What are, what are one or two of the main ones that have stood out for you lately, Anna?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I just thought this this could be a... I mean, it's, there's so many, so we'll... You know, we'll we'll only probably get to a few today, but yeah, just thinking of some of the Irish, mostly novels, I think that have made it kind of into real blockbuster Hollywood films. Um, and you know, there's a lot really from recent decades. Um, and kind of wondering what is the appeal, what makes them do so well, particularly with with kind of global and particularly American audiences. Um, and I think it to reference wild mountain time again it probably is partly that, that after seeing that trailer that put me in the spirit of it because i almost was looking at that and thinking you know who is this for because it seems like it's for is it for americans who identify as irish americans or like who i don't know because americans do love irish people you know they're And i found that from living there that there's irish people are very well regarded you know and and also there is a huge i can't remember the figures but there is a huge diaspora population of like millions of americans would identify as irish american because they have whether it's like a close link or even you know like a great great grandparent but they still you know will be very attached to that so I don't know if a film <laughs> remains to be seen what the wild mountain time <laughs> is going to be like but it does seem like it's it's almost like a, somebody's impression of Ireland who hasn't been there or something it's like a bit set in the past it's like everything is is rural I think while I talked to a lot of people about that um, trailer and it's kind of who had the same experiences as me where they thought that it must have been set in like the 1960s until Emily Blunt references something about freezing her eggs and you're like wait sorry what decade are we talking about if she's talking about IVF and then you realise it's present day because I think it's just this sort of like you know unrealistic setting of Ireland that as if it's it hasn't modernised Um, mm-hmm. for, for some reason that appeals to people um, and there's a lot of other films I think that have have kind of gone down that road.
0: Other people say, which I do think is true to an extent that the Irish accent, I and mean, this is the accent and the portrayal obviously are two different things. But the the accent, um, apparently, your accent is very hard to get right. And yeah. you know, like even the way that I speak. And the way that someone from Dublin would speak or someone from Cork would speak or even, you know, um, in the Midlands would speak would be very, very different. But you can't get away from the betrayal either. And I do think that between that, maybe, I'm not sure, could you say the same about Brooklyn, but when it comes to our... When it comes to the romantic side of things and these adaptations, or it could be in the books as well. I remember as a normal people, but I think it was really emphasized in the the television series that when it comes to like that part of our lives that that we're chronic communicators and we, <laughs> that we cannot true. communicate effectively, which you know, to a certain extent could absolutely be, be true. Um, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that, but I, I just well, think, yeah. I just think there's certain parts of it that are just take it and run away with it. Um, I have to say I did enjoy Brooklyn. Um, I
1: Brooklyn's thought was really good.
0: Yeah, I I thought it was shot beautifully. I remember I I went to it in the cinema. Um at the time i remember it was i love this the you know the cinematography around it and you know the clothes and even you know (laughs) the makeup in it i i i thought it was really really well done but um yeah
1: Yeah, and i think it's not um i don't think it really takes many liberties with you know it it actually felt quite realistic obviously it's a kind of like a hollywood film and you know it's beautifully shot kind of as you're saying but um I don't know it felt like she it's just done quite sophisticatedly it's also that really I think that the story of you know the immigrant journey of going to New York you know at that time I think it's set in the 50s and her life there. there's something really appealing about that story and it's done really well so I think um, it's not actually surprising at all how much of a hit that was and like Saoirse Ronan is so good in it I actually and I've read the book and I thought the film was better because I I think Saoirse Ronan... You hear Ronan, that too often. Nah, no, not one. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know, controversial. Maybe, 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 maybe people hot love take, that Alice, Hot take, and it's hot take of the oh, week. Geez, yeah, I hope I'm not pissing <laughs> off Toby now. But I, I just thought, because I found the lead character in the book quite flat and sort of I didn't really get behind her. But yeah. I thought in the film, Saoirse Ronan is just really great actually in it so I think she yeah she kind of makes it um I don't know how I've nothing against Saoirse Ronan personally
0: but uh, half the time she's been interviewed and it's probably not anything to do with her or she's no input in the question she's been asked but it's you know I see certainly like accent challenges and um
1: yeah what is it I to be Irish
0: and you know do you know Mm -hmm. a leprechaun handy or like (laughs) something like
1: it's and it just kind of I feel it's very undermining for the actual person yeah I'm just trying to think like I wonder if she's starting to get away from that now maybe a bit more but it it does feel like it comes up a lot especially in the kind of American like late night tv chat show circuit and I don't know I also just think it must be really hard to be an actor being interviewed you know just like it's it's it is that's obviously a performance as well when you're on like a late night show like that so then you know and she's just very personable so she'll like chat about that whatever I mean she also gets like I think a lot of people in Ireland kind of question her accent in real life but apparently her parents are from Dublin isn't it because she she has an accent that you're a bit like oh I thought you were from Carlo you don't really sound like it but I think I think her parents are from Dublin so she, anyway, but I, I think, yeah, it does, it does come up a lot.
0: I touched on it there briefly. We can't get away from it, normal people.
1: Yes, normal people. Yeah, so good. I mean, it, it was really kind of what got us through lockdown one, <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it was. Called so, a Ruckus on so so Lifeline hard. as well. <laughs> oh, oh, that sorry, that was that.
0: That's so that, funny. That that relates to like the committee on evil literature, <laughs> like yeah. you
1: know. Actually, do you know what it really does? I because I listened to that, <laughs> and I was like, and as my sister Maeve pointed out, there was one person who sounded like they were a priest, but they weren't admitting it, and they were calling in as just like a concerned citizen. But it was like, are you a priest, though? Because he kept using <laughs> words like fornication and stuff. I was like, what decade are we living in? Like, what are you talking about? And almost the from the live line, like, oh, God, it was so funny. But it was almost as if one of the things I took away from it was people were sort of saying, oh, yeah, it's fine to have that stuff in TV, but just not Irish TV. You know, not things that are set in Ireland. And you're like, OK, so you just want to pretend that nobody like what like what how how does it make a difference to you whether it's Irish or like an American program it just none of it made sense that was oh god that was funny poor old Joe Duffy he puts up with a lot
0: but but did you enjoy the the tv adaptation of it yeah
1: yeah I really did actually and it's one it's actually another one god I'm two in a row but I I nearly thought that was as good or better better than the book maybe I you know they're obviously very different. You know when you're adapting for for the screen, but it's I suppose it's just one of those things that you're often expecting a TV or film adaptation to let you down in certain areas. But I just thought it was brilliant and um yeah, I think you know it was nice that they were really had the time to be able to make it over a series and then be really faithful then to kind of the book and the spirit of it and you know give everything a time actors yeah I mean they've they were fantastic and Daisy Edgar Jones is someone who absolutely nailed the Irish accent but she does have an Irish parent her mom I think Uh, so she you know that that helped her out on that front because her accent was really good
0: and just the the last one we have uh PS I love you which again is another I've actually watched that film more maybe than I might admit (laughs) um But yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> always comes up around holiday
1: time on the telly. But, um, yes, it's true. I've read it, I think I've read it as well as seen it. It's Cecilia Hearn. Um, can't remember what I thought of it now. I don't think I thought it was that well written, you yeah. know. But obviously, like, there's you know the story is appealing I think the novel is written as you know the way in the film it's like the le- obviously the letters are the thread throughout the whole narrative so the the book I think is just the letters maybe okay for me no sorry it's probably not maybe it's like each chapter starts with it or something um so is it was a good like it's a definitely like a, a pretty decently crafted idea for a plot yeah the definitely coming back to like the you know performing <laughs> ireland for the american audience there's definitely yeah. a bit of that in the film isn't there it's like you know yeah just arriving it's like her calling dunleary dunleigh harry and oh god it's just quite <laughs> cringe in parts isn't it but you know and that's everything we have for you this week on readers hour we hope you enjoyed tuning in Don't forget,
0: you can find us on Twitter at ReadersHour and get in touch with us via email at readershour at gmail.com. As always, we will be sharing links that you can listen back to and share with your friends and
1: family, so don't be afraid
0: to spread the word. All right, so
1: take care and enjoy your Saturday and the rest of your weekend.